Hi there, Brent Mutis here from CapU Athletics and Rec. Welcome back to the CapU Blues podcast. We have a special episode this time as we speak with Georgette Reed, the fourth athletic director in CapU history. As a former athlete and coach who has represented Canada at the Olympics, Georgette has a great story that brings us right up to today and her start at CapU. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello again, and welcome to episode 10 of the Cap U Blues podcast. Joining us today, a special guest, not necessarily a Blues alum, but definitely now part of the Blues family. We're pleased to be joined today with Georgette Reed, the athletic director of uh, Cap U Blues Department of Athletics and Recreation. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be a part of your podcast today. So we're around each other every day in the office, but uh, right now we're separated across campus and I'm recording this in a soundproof booth. You're in the office and uh, and we'll take it from here. Um, there's big news today. The, the news actually came out last week and we're going to start off with this. We just announced it today to, to our community here at CapU, but big congrats are in order for you. You've just been named part of uh, the Hall of Fame class of 2022 at your alma mater, Washington State University. Congratulations on being a Hall of Famer. Oh, thank you so much. It's uh, it was quite exciting when they called me up and said, hey, don't let anybody know, but we're announcing that we're going to induct you into the Washington State Athletics Hall of Fame. And uh, I got really excited because my dad's in the Washington State Athletics Hall of Fame. Right. And I think we're the first father-daughter duo. There might only other, be one other like family connection in there. There's I think there's a baseball player and and his father, you know, from back in the 50s and 60s or whatever that uh, were the first uh, uh, family uh, members that were inducted. So it's just kind of a first. And then right. to be part of the special class, the Title IX class, the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which gave you know, women, um, an opportunity, an equal opportunity to be able to participate in sport, to be leaders in sport, to have access to sport. I mean, it, it's huge. Um, without that, I wouldn't be here. Right. Yeah. It's such a, there's so many neat angles to this particular story. Not only that unique hall of fame class that you just described the father daughter combination, your own path to getting to be a, a Washington state university hall of famer, was not necessarily a straight and narrow path. There were some twists and turns along the way, and that's something we're going to touch on as we go forward in the podcast here. But thanks so much for uh, for describing um, the specifics about your Hall of Fame class. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun when you and your dad get to head down there later this year. And we maybe talk a bit about a bit more about that as, uh, as we move along here. But um, as we get started with the podcast, I usually ask everybody what kind of their last year of their life has been like, especially as we were coming out of podcast, uh, sorry, especially as we were coming out of uh, COVID settings, it kind of feels like things are a little bit more normal. Like we're on campus day to day. Uh, we see each other um, every day of the work week. So I kind of know what that's been like for you, but since you're about three months on the job as the athletic director, I'll kind of change it for you and say, um, how would you describe or what stands out to you about your first three months as the, as the Cap U Blues AD? I think the love that a lot of people have for, for Cap U and, and for the old Cap colleges, a lot of people like to still call it. Yeah. But um, I think that it's kind of an undisco undiscovered gem. 
and people have heard of it or they or they've been around it or they know that it's here but they haven't really paid much attention to it and i find that the people are getting more and more excited about creating more awareness about Capilano University and the, the great things that it can do and the things that it has to offer. And there's a lot of people on the North Shore that are proud of CapU and want to be able to, to kind of come back to the fold and get back um, involved with CapU again. And, and I found that I've had a lot of people reaching out to me and saying, I'm a North Shore person and and um, I'm excited with the new direction that everything's going and we want to get involved again. And so that's been that's been really nice. Um, I'm finding that there may have been some things where my predecessors might have had a few roadblocks, but because I'm new and I kind of come in with, well, let's just try it anyway. Uh, that attitude that I'm finding that um, being able to collaborate and make more connections. So hopefully we'll be able to, to create something new and, and get more more people that really want to be a part of everything that we're doing, whether it could be athletics and recreation or the, our collaborations with the faculty or just getting more student involvement, you know, getting our international students, you know, exposed to what that sport in Canada is really like and, and just being able to make this a great experience for um, students and staff. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for uh, sharing that about your your start here. Um, but we're going to go back to, to your start as a young person in, uh, and, and the role that sport played uh, growing up for you. Um, just before, you know, we should probably add the detail. You mentioned your dad being a, a Hall of Famer like yourself. You're going to be a father-daughter duo in the Washington State University Hall of Fame. Just for anybody that doesn't know, your dad is a legendary CFL player, George Reed. <laughs> Uh, one of the greatest to ever play uh, for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Um, so that puts your upbringing in Regina, Saskatchewan. So take us back there and talk about uh, your your youth and what role sports played for you uh, growing up there. Oh, man. The sports was everything. Sports kind of opened the door for me. Um, I was uh, I'm the youngest of, of uh, three kids, and so I was the – kind of the last one rolling around the house and I never really cared much about sport. My brother was a, a baseball player early on and my sister was into like dancing and all that. And I like to eat. <laughs> I still do. That's my favorite <laughs> thing to do. I love food. And so I spent more of my time eating than anything else. And uh, <clears throat> I think my, uh, my dad wanted me to, to feel better about myself and to get active. So he put me into dancing and ballet and I sure as heck wasn't a, a ballet dancer. I looked more like a hippo and a tutu dancing around and <laughs> knocking everybody over like the, the movie Fantasia. And um, my one day I was hanging out with my mom and she kicked me out of the house because I was eating too much. <laughs> I'd eaten, <laughs> I think, uh, most of the cereal and half a loaf of bread and and she made me go outside and, and relax. And uh, I fell into our pool. We had a pool in the backyard. And uh, I started floating and my mom called the local swim team. <laughs> so that's kind of how I started sport. You know, I got into, I just kind of fell into the pool and, and then got into swimming. Um, I loved swimming. Once I got into it, I, I absolutely loved being in the water. There was just something that was so peaceful and restorative about being in the water. And I loved it, but I wasn't very good at first. And I had lots of people tell me to quit. I had had lots of people tell me that I didn't belong there because back in the 70s there weren't any black swimmers mm -hmm. and so it was one of those things where I didn't fit in and uh so experienced a little bit of not racism but maybe just if you don't 
know better. You just kind of go with what go with the flow. Like if people aren't used to seeing, you know, um, black athletes in non-traditional sports for 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 black athletes. Um, people tend to, tend to buck the system a little bit. And um, uh, at first, I didn't get a, a lot of welcome, but I was kind of hard-headed and, and just put my head down. And before I knew it, I was one of the best 10 under swimmers in the country and started traveling around competing for the province of Saskatchewan and, and then being on the junior national teams and uh, actually represented Canada and Sweden when I, uh, as a 13-year-old. When, oh, wow. Uh, on a junior national team was part of a team that uh, went overseas and then was just on my way and getting ready to go to the Olympic trials in, uh, it was 80, 80 Olympic trials and I wrecked my shoulder so I couldn't go and then came back and 81 went to Canada Games, was doing fairly well and then my knees kind of gave out on me a little bit because I grew um, probably a foot and a half, almost two feet in a year. I just wow. shot up. So then the knees had that, that wonky kind of thing. And huh. um, so I had a few injuries off and on and through the first part of the eighties. And then about 83, 84 started uh, getting into water polo. So doing that a little bit more. So doing water polo and swimming um, and then kept swimming through 85 and then got an offer from Washington state university to come and swim on their on their swim team, be on a swim team. So um, couldn't go in, in 85. Um, we just, it wasn't the right timing for our family. So I went um, fall of 86, went to Washington State and uh, walked into the swim coach's office and uh, introduced myself. And she didn't believe I was who I was. She didn't believe that I was Georgette Reed because she said that black swimmers, black people don't swim. Wow. And so that was the first time I was like, okay, I'm from Canada. We do everything in Canada. Like, what are you talking about? Because being in Saskatchewan and being my, my dad being George Reed, after a while it was like I just did everything because people let me because of one of who my dad was and two, they knew at the time there were only so many black kids that were doing things. So if it's either if it were the, if there were girls, it was the Reeds. If it was boys, it was either the Reeds or the McCorders. Because that was the only black families that were playing around at the time that had kids. And so I was able to do a lot of things in that small environment. Went to Washington State and the swim coach didn't believe that I could swim. So she held on to my scholarship until I could prove that I could swim. And she gave me a two-week tryout. And in that two-week tryout, um, I showed her everything that I could do. And I was recruited for um, butterfly and sprint freestyle. End of the two-week tryout that she had for me, I was the best um, sprint freestyler, best middle-distance freestyler, best long-distance freestyler, best butterflyer, best medley swimmer, um, pretty close with breaststroke and didn't care about backstroke. I never liked that. <laughs> but well, uh, Yeah, it's an amazing story, and I didn't know any of that. But, I mean, it sounds so different than today where you're going to bring a scholarship athlete onto your team but not even physically know what they look like or who they are. That's, uh, it sounds hard to believe. Well, it was weird. It's like she had pictures, you know, so, you know, I, I don't really understand the whole thing. Maybe she didn't really look at all the, maybe she just looked at the printouts from the, the results and didn't really look at the pictures. So, um, it was one of those things, you know, and then after the, the two week tryout, she, uh, says, well, you're, you can swim. It's great. You're going to be a great addition to this team, but I gave your scholarship away. 
because she didn't believe in me. So that first year, um, I had three different jobs because I wanted to stay in school. I had a full course load for, for classes. I had a job in a weight room. I had a job as a lifeguard and I had a job in an office. So I rotated those jobs around to, to have enough money to do schooling. And, um, and then I swam extra just to kind of, because I was hard-headed and I wanted to prove her wrong. And they only did eight practices a week and I was used to 13. Uh-huh. So I would do extra swimming and uh, then really hurt my shoulder because mm-hmm. I was just trying to do too much. I was trying to prove somebody else wrong, you know, and I realized that there's really nothing in this world worth hurting yourself for to prove somebody else wrong or right. So then I, uh, there wasn't any, I walked off, I left the team and rehabbed my shoulder and there wasn't really a whole lot I could do. Um, so I had a friend that said, go to see the track coach. So I walked over to the track coach and, and he said that I could kind of hang out. So the rest of that, that first year, I just kind of hung out with the track team. And then the second year I came back to try out and, and um, was okay. wasn't very good. You know, at one point the coach thought I should take up golf or something else. <laughs> But um, I was stubborn and I, I really wanted to do it. And um, I um, was in the weight room trying to work hard and get stronger and do the things that I thought was needed. And I was uh, befriended by a lot of the guys on the men's team, um, some of the European athletes that saw me trying to work hard. So then they helped me. So then I learned a lot more about Olympic lifting and I learned more about health and, and looking after the body and different things that more from a European perspective. And it was great because um, that kind of gave me my love for strength and conditioning, which was is one of the roles that I, I played in my last job. And um, it taught me a lot about just being an all over athlete, not about being just big, because for throwing, you can be big and be a good thrower. But if you're athletic, you can be better. Mm-hmm. And a classic example of that is Sarah Mitten, who's now the Canadian record holder in the shot put. Um, she just threw 20 meters, 20.33 meters this last weekend at nationals. We've never had a woman throw over 20 meters before. And she's a strong, solid athlete. She's not super big, but she's fast and she's athletic. And it's something I've always believed that with the right technique and the right combination, you can do anything. And she's proved that. And so working with these European athletes, I learned a lot about, about body and control and strength and conditioning and my coaches um, on the women's side, because men's and women's sports were separated. There was a men's team and a women's team. There wasn't a combined team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would work out more with the men's team because my coach at the time didn't know much about rotational shot put, which is what I was trying to do because she was a glider and everybody else that she knew was did glide and I wanted to do rotational. And um, it just kind of went from one thing to the other. I went from not being anybody that the coach would look at on the team to all of a sudden going to competitions, throwing really well. And then I, and then in my second year, I broke the, the old school record and then just kept improving and improving and going to conference championships and improving and improving. And so doing a little bit with, with the women's coach, but mostly working with uh, Rick Sloan, who was a men's coach at the time. And he was helping me do my different things and then working with his, uh, his male athletes. And after my, Four years at Washington State, I ended up being an All-American. I ended up um, breaking the school record by like eight feet, something like wow. that, or, or 10 or 12 feet, something like that. 
um, and then um, and then qualifying for the Olympics. You know, you know, all kind of in that same period, or had my first qualifier for the Olympics, and then did my second qualifier in '92, and and made the team. So it was kind of a Cinderella story because no going kidding. from not knowing anything about a shot and actually um, my first experience with a shot, I was playing with it or trying to you know throw it up and down because the coach was playing with it and he went to hand it to me and I missed catching it from him and, and it hit his foot. So I broke my coach's <laughs> foot with a shot. That was my first experience. So, I mean, I had all these different experiences in things that I would have, never imagined. I mean, it probably make a great Disney movie some someday if I went into everything that I went through. But, um, you know, none of that would have would have even happened or I would have had an opportunity, I don't think, if I would have been anywhere else or if I hadn't have been in a situation where I was kind of the first, the first to kind of to kind of um, go that path. I was the first person who ever wanted to do rotational shot. Mm -hmm. um, at Washington State, there weren't a whole lot of women doing it at the time, so I was pretty um, unique. And then by the time that I finished my college career, most of the women were doing rotational, and now it's it's the nobody most does it the other way wrong. anymore. Yeah, no, yeah, you've it's, it's such great background that you've given us here, and obviously, I'm learning all this for the first time too. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I kind of imagined that you were going to tell me you were involved in sports from the time you could walk, and it really it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> And you were kind of just very chill about it up until you found something that you loved, I guess. And that's what ignited the, the fire because it sounds like you were kind of take it or leave it about sports until you kind of literally fell into swimming. Definitely. And for whatever reason, you kind of, you know, were very obstinate about sticking with something, even when people told you you couldn't do it because you've already described three examples when you were a young kid, when you came to Washington state. And then when you, when you started, uh, checking out track and field you were told each time that you weren't going to be good enough and that you should try something else so yeah having that having passion or finding passion when you found something you were good at and then being having a belief I guess uh to be stubborn about sticking with it do you think yeah. is that come from your upbringing is that just wired into you I mean you had such an influential figure in your dad I would think and mm -hmm. I don't know if he's that way or how do you think that came to be within you I think a lot of it came from watching him, seeing the things that he went through, because I mean, in, in the early years, and I mean, he's told me stories, but I saw a little bit of it. I wasn't quite old enough to understand what it all was, but he went through the early years of racism and, and things like that, like being a, uh, even being who he was in the first few years of his career and all the things he was accomplishing. And he would go to rent an apartment and he'd call up you know, to rent an apartment, they'd say, sure, yeah, it's it's available, come on down. And then he'd show up and they go, oh, we just rented it. Mm -hmm. You know, and then and then he'd call back later and the person would be, oh, yeah, it's still available. Wow. You know, and they were going through those types of things. So I watched his resilience because he never got, you know, for lack of a better term, he never got uppity and, and you know, and, and started, you know, carrying placards and demanding justice. He would just keep moving forward. You know, it, it was like his thing. He would go to a restaurant and if he had great service, fantastic. He'd be back. If he had terrible service, he wouldn't complain. He would he would tip. He would do all those things, you know, that you do. But he just would never go back there again. Hmm. And it was kind of that that 
quiet kind of strength. And so I watched him and I kind of learned some of that. And then I also learned, you know, from the things that he didn't do, you know, sometimes when he should have stood up for himself or sometimes when he needed to, to, to be a little bit more diplomatic with some of the things, you know, when, whether if it was when he was the president of the players association, CFL players association, he fought hard to have for players to have a pension for players to have, you know, better pay and all those types of things. But fighting for the side of the players robbed him of an opportunity to be the CFL commissioner because he was up for that role. But because people thought he was too much in line with the players, he didn't get an opportunity to do that. So I I watched the different things that he's done and I've kind of learned. And so from a young age, I've always been really observant and just tried to find ways of making sure that no matter what happened, that I would still always have enough belief in myself and stay, have enough belief in that everything will work itself out as long as I kept moving forward. And I think that's kind of been my mantra. And I say that to, to everybody that I talk to that, you know, the greatest temptation in life is to stay where we are, where it's comfy, it's cozy, it's, it, it feels good. And sometimes we have to resist that temptation and we have to step outside of our comfort zone and do those things that scare us. So then that way we can grow, you know, cause the worst thing that's ever gonna happen is people can say no, or it doesn't work out the way that you thought it was going to. But if you keep moving forward, it'll take you in the, in the directions that you need to go and you'll eventually end up wherever it was that you were meant to be. I mean, that's what brought me here. I mean, I've kind of snaked my way around through, through different positions when I was at the University of Alberta coaching you know, if I were to stay coaching, maybe this would have been a natural path for me, you know, coaching and administration or whatever. But then I had kind of a, a, a bomb thrown into my situation there. They cut the, the program, the title of the program, they wanted to move in a different direction and they didn't know how to do it. So they just kind of got rid of my title and changed the title. So then I had to reapply for the job and they give it to somebody else. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's those types of things and it's political and, and sometimes that's the way things are. But you have to realize that it's not always about you. Sometimes people have their own their own thoughts. They have their own um, plans. And sometimes you end up being collateral damage and some of that. And all you can do, again, is just keep moving forward. So leaving the university and then getting on with the city of Edmonton and then working with Fire Rescue, that gave me that, that passion and that drive to work on all the things that had meant so much to me, like mental health like actually helping people with their wellness and and learning more about not just about performance for you know olympic glory or provincial medals or anything but performance for daily living so so that my firefighters i told them when i'm training you it's because 30 years from now when you retire i want you to be as fit or fitter than what you are right now that you can actually have live happy in retirement so that this job hasn't knocked you down so much. And that's always, that was always my philosophy. And it was always about building a better person, not about just making people bigger, stronger, faster. And then when I, you know, between building the whole person and working with the mental health and, and creating a mental health program to be able to support people, that was like a, a huge thing that kind of helped re-energize me and move me forward because it was kind of the not the missing piece but it was a piece that I'd always kind of been um, looking at but didn't have as much education in. and I took as much education opportunity 
um, on that side. So now I, for the Department of National Defense, I'm a master trainer for um, road to mental readiness and I do mental health first aid training and all those types of things. So I have all those in my pocket, which I think helps me as I learn, as I come back into the coaching realm um, and, you know, coaching coaches, you know, being the athletic director and I get a chance to coach the coaches and kind of give uh, sort, sort of my my experience, lend my experience and the different things that I've gone through. Because I've still been kind of coaching on the side this whole time, working with Team Canada and, and different athletes and things. But now I get a chance to kind of put it all together and I get a chance to support a staff so then that way they can do their very best, perform at their very best to be able to support the, the um, goals of our, of our department and university. Hey, thanks for listening. Please rate and recommend us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And for all the latest blues, notes, and news, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Capilano Blues. Oh, it's such great color into uh, some of your experiences that I, we're going to talk a bit more about as we as we as we move along here. But uh, I appreciate all those reflections. Um, I I think we were kind of at. Uh, I want to take it back to sport a little more specifically. We kind of gotten to the point where you were uh, becoming part of the track and field team at Washington state after, you know, transitioning out of swimming. Uh, I guess what I'll ask you is how did it, how was it that you fixated on the throwing sports shot put and a bit of discus, I guess. Um, it sounds like you kind of just observed for a while. How was it that it was shot put that, that, that you wound up choosing to go forward with on the track side? <laughs> It hurt the least. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I tried throwing javelin, but javelin will wreck your shoulder and your elbow really quickly. And you had shoulder you problems from swimming, I guess. So already had shoulder problems from swimming. Um, you know, I, I had my mental scars from uh, from high jump in the fourth grade when and, you know as a <laughs> as a little fat kid, and they're trying to get the little fat kid to jump over the bar, you know, and land on the pit and. I would run as fast as I could and I'd jump over the bar and over the pit and land on the ground. So I was like, no more high jump for me. Right. So, you know, and, you know, running, I'm like, you know, from the couch to the fridge, that's it. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not much of a runner. So, you know, shot put kind of hurt the least. And, and, and at first discus was my first love because it was fun. Uh -huh. The spinning yeah. was fun. Right. And I think that's what made me want to try doing rotational shot was because my coach was always trying to get me to be a, um, a glider because that's what she did and that's what she knew how to teach mm -hmm. and i said well i want to try this and i tried it the first time and the first time it went off in the wrong direction but the second time it went in the right direction and went further than what i was doing when i was gliding mm -hmm. so then i thought oh, i want to keep doing this right and uh, my teammates were like yeah this is kind of cool and but my coach didn't know how to coach it so that's what got me working with the men's team yeah so it was because it's not like you invented that Right. Nope. But like men's men's shot putters were doing it, but not women. Is that kind of how it was at the time? At the time, there were a few of those like kind of half and half. Um, the world record holder or the one who had brought most uh, claim to fame, Brian Oldfield, um, was a huge, um, huge man. And he was a rotational shot putter and he'd thrown world records and, and things like that with it. So I think that was one of my first kind of uh idols as far as you know a shot putter was like on the men's side brian Ofield, and then mac wilkins was the had been the world record holder and was still quite big in the throwing world um for discus so looking at those two athletes and i was like i want to be like that because there wasn't a female athlete that was throwing rotational 
they're all still doing um, gliding. And for me, most people, when they meet me, they say, I'm a fairly large woman. I'm, you know, 5'10", 200 pounds or whatever. And uh, I'm tiny. I'm tiny for a shot putter or, or considered tiny <laughs> or was at the time. So um, rotational allowed me to, to leverage, you know, my speed, my strength, um, uh, athletic abilities to be able to throw. So for kind of teaching myself and then having a little help from, from coach Sloan and, and then having my lifting help from my European buddies, I just kind of slapped my career together. It was kind of a journeyman's way of doing it. You know, now that, you know, 30 years later and I've, I've been coaching whatever, and now I, I know more about technique and I was like, darn, I wish I could do that. And I wish I could do that. And I see people like Sarah Mitten throwing now and I'm like, Oh, wow. She, she does that perfectly. I wish I could have been able to do that. And, mm -hmm. you know, and you, and you pull that together again. And, and, um, but I'm really proud of what I did because it was kind of just on my own, just journeyman, just kind of pick and, you know, from whoever. And then when I came back to Canada, after um, being at Washington state, I worked with a, a coach named Les Gramantic and uh, he was uh, known for um, being a coach for decathletes. So Mike Smith, um, mm -hmm. you know, he kind of, you know, he, he, you know, kind of helped out with some of the other, you know, great decathletes and, and things like that. And so those were my training partners. So, you know, they didn't throw as much as I did. So, but I would train like a decathlete or like a heptathlete. So Catriona, LeMay, Doan, Michael Smith, um, trying to think of who else was in our training group. Those were all my training partners. Um, Jessica Zelenka. So all these people that, you know, are well known in the, in the track world were all my, my training partners. So I, I learned a lot from, from all of them too. And, and Les really helped me with being more athletic and really, hmm. um, kind of being able to also balance. Um, he helped me learn about how to, how to manage my temper. Cause I was one of those fiery athletes that just, you okay. know, I just headstrong, you know, bull in China shop kind of do it. And he taught me a little bit more about the, the art of, mm -hmm. you know, being an athlete and the art of, of coaching and all of that. And, and, and I thank him um, for that to this day, because there's some things that you can put your head down and ram through. And there's other things where you have to have a, you know, a kick glove and have a little gentler approach. So um, being able to work with all those different groups was fantastic because I got a chance to see sport in so many different ways. And we had um, a para athlete, Earl Connor, that worked in our group. And so it was fun because he has a above the knee prosthetic. And so we used to do, um, I would do starts with him just to kind of be able to work on my, on my, on my starts. And this is a guy that can run hundred meters in 12 seconds, under 12 seconds. He won the gold medal and in, um, in uh, Beijing in 2008. And I actually was there as a coach. So I, and I actually was the coach that was assigned to help him throughout the the Olympics, so that it, the Paralympics, so it was really cool to kind of go for full circle from being with my training partner to then all of a sudden watching him win a gold medal. You know, yeah. so the experiences, um, you know, from just kind of teaching myself and then working with the different coaches at Washington State and the different athletes, it all just kind of has kind of built this toolbox for me to be able to have to to you know, keep, uh, I mean, I still throw as a master's a little bit. So, it, you know, it gives me a toolbox to kind of, for my experiences and then working with others and then whether they'd be able-bodied or, or para, um, it's been a pretty neat experience. And it all came from 
playing around in the little circle in Washington State by myself and being kind of bullheaded and wanting to get it right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wanted to reset a little bit towards your own Olympic path. I mean, when you set out for college sports as a swimmer, I imagine Olympics were probably in the back of your mind in that in that uh, sport. Obviously, injuries got in the way there. When you transitioned to being in track and field, did you have any, because you're essentially, by the time you made that transition, you were in the four years leading up to when you were about to go to the Olympics. Was that at all part of your thought process or a goal that you had? Because you were so new to the sport. Um, no, I always thought that I was going to be an Olympic swimmer. That was my goal ever since I started swimming. And um, when I got into track and field, it was mostly because I wasn't, I wasn't done yet. Like with, when I finished my swimming career because of my injuries, I was like, I still need something to do. I don't want to just fade into the woodwork or, or I had been a swim coach at the time, so I could have gone into coaching mm -hmm. already, but I wasn't ready to do that. I knew I still had so much more to give and, and throwing was a challenge for me. So figuring it out, it's like, you know, some people figure out a Rubik's cube and sit there and play with it. That was throwing for me. I got a chance to sit there and like look at film and tape and look at different athletes and then look at different techniques and, and study and talk to different coaches. And I was always kind of a student trying to learn. And, you know, the first little while it, it went well, like when I broke the, the school record in my second year, I thought for my third year, I was already, I won nationals um, for Canada. And I thought that third year I was just going to kick butt, that I was going to explode and I was going to throw really far. But then I learned that, you know, you need to have rest. You need to have diet. You need to learn proper periodization because I was just killing myself. I was training every day. I never took rest days. And then, you, you know, I had to kind of take a knee one day because I was done. I was flat out. So then I had to, I didn't have the year I wanted to, my, hmm. my, my junior year. So I thought, how can I make this better? And that's when I learned a little bit more about, you know, recovery and periodization and just, it's okay to take a step back every once in a while. You don't have to go a hundred miles an hour all the time. You know, you can, you can gear down every once in a while. So then that way you can kind of propel yourself forward. And so my last year was just when I needed to rest, I rested. I didn't do as many meets or if I did um, all the different dual meets and things that we had, I would take a day off after or two days off after and, and rest. And I kind of ran my own schedule, you know, like I would collaborate with, with my university coach, but I was kind of doing my own schedule and kind of training with the guys a little bit more. So there wasn't, um, I, I had a little bit more control probably more, much more so than what an athlete would have now, I would imagine. But um, that last year, everything just started to click and I was having a lot of fun and I was traveling around and, and then when you hit that sweet spot with, with, with the throw, it's just, it's a phenomenal feeling. Mm -hmm. And I know when I hit the sweet spot with the one throw at the NC2As in, uh, in 91, it was like, I knew that it was a good throw and, and it, and it was a good throw. It was a good enough throw to, to kind of get me, you know, set up for, for the Olympics. And, and uh, at that point in time, I was like, wow, I can actually do this. Cause I had been doing things with the national team every summer when I came home after school and I was getting better and better and better. But at the same time, it still seemed like it was 
still so far away. It wasn't something that it was something I was interested in and kind of aiming towards, but I wasn't really sure. But I figured if I just kept my head down and kept going forward, we'd see what happened. And then that last year, everything just started to come together and, and, uh, and it was happening. But then I had a great, you had a good, good um, college season, had an okay summer, but um, I got beat at nationals. Um, hmm. I didn't throw well at nationals that year. So 91 was the one year uh, since 1990 that I didn't win nationals. And uh, so I didn't get a chance to go to world championships. Oh. And so that really kind of had me reflect and, and look back and do some things. And so um, going into 92, I really took stock into the things that I needed to do, what was most important, where I needed to train, who I needed to, to, to train with, and, and uh, really set myself up on a path to get that second qualifying mark so I could uh, go to, uh, to Barcelona. And it, in the summertime, it all happened. And then I got selected, and it was I, it was unbelievable. I was so excited. And I, um, my brother is, is a kind of a huge cheerleader for me. And when I told him, I remember him crying. I mean, my mom oh, and dad wow. were like, Oh, that's great. My brother was like that. He was just so over emotional, you know, that huh. his little sister did that. And, um, it was something that I would have never imagined, but it was something that they, I, it probably wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been at Washington state. It was the, it was the right environment for me to be able to figure myself out and to figure out where I wanted to go and to put me in the direction that, that I needed to go, which was being a part of track and field, because it wasn't something that um, I was even looking at or interested in um, if, um, if I hadn't have been there and if I hadn't had a shoulder injury. Yeah. Funny how life works out, but I'm glad you uh, talked about the environment at Washington state. I mean, uh, we've already talked about how you and your dad are going into the hall of fame. So obviously he had, uh, he's already in, you're going to join him, but he had a hall of fame career as a football player, um, which I guess kind of opened the doors to Washington state versus other schools at the time when you were considering swimming future out of, uh, you know, going <laughs> to college, but he didn't grow up in that neck of the woods and he wound up there. Um, what, I know we're going backwards a little bit, but how was uh, the recruiting process coming out of, I guess you're, you're finishing up high school and looking at places to swim competitively in the post-secondary realm. Was it just a no-brainer you would go there? Because he did? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Actually, I kind of got told that I kind of had to go to Washington State. I was on the places that should be on my list of, of final uh, schools. By him, I assume. Um, assume. Yeah, at the time... Um, I was really, I was doing really well in swimming, but I was also doing really, really well in water polo. I was part mm -hmm. of the junior national um, water polo team. And we had a tournament down in, at, at Berkeley. Hmm. And um, I got asked by the coaches there if I wanted to come to Berkeley and play water polo or uh, UCLA. And I could, I could go and swim down there. And hmm. my aunt worked there. So I was like, oh, I could, I could do both of these. And my dad's like, well, I'd really like you to consider Washington State. And I said, but they don't have water polo. And at the time, right. my water polo was even better than my swimming. Huh. So I was like, I, I really want to go play, play water polo. And he's like, well, you know, just try Washington State. So then I, hmm. I you know, I, I applied and, and whatnot and decided, okay, well, it's where dad went to school. I can try it for a year. And if I don't like it, I can go somewhere else. Hmm. And then when I got down there, everything just kind of unfolded the way that it did with, with swimming. And they only had a men's water polo team, so I couldn't even play water polo. Right. Um, so 
I just decided, well, I'll just stick it out. I'll swim here and maybe do well enough that I can transfer to another school. And then everything unfolded the way that it did. And, mm -hmm. and it took me towards track and field. Because it might've killed him a little bit if you were uh, in a, a conference rival school for water polo, if you'd have been at oh, UCLA or, 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 or Cal, that might've yeah. killed him a little bit. What was it like competing in the, was it the Pac-10 at the time or was it the Pac-10? Pac yeah, Pac-10. So like with track and field, just sort of like other sports, you travel around to the different campuses that, that are hosting that are hosting meets throughout the year. I don't imagine you saw every campus every year, but how did it kind of go? Oh, yeah, you'd have, you know, your, your schedule that would be put out and you'd see which which meets would be the best for um, you'd have your conference competitions and the other ones that that um, had the best um environment for good results so we'd always go to to eugene every year and i love hayward field i love the university of oregon university of oregon track town usa it is it was it was my favorite place to go and i had some of my best results there and actually that's where i threw my olympic qualifier was was there at, at nationals in 91 um great environment great facility so i love going to eugene long bus rides um you know we go to, to uw you know university of washington and have meets there um, every once in a while, we'd go down to like a, a meet at Stanford where we'd fly down. Um, uh, we never really did too much at UCLA, but there was a big uh, meet called Mount Sac. And it was one of the biggest, it still is one of the biggest track and field um, competitions um, down in California. So you got all the top high schoolers, all of the top international athletes, all the top college athletes all go there. So I had good results there too. And so those would be the the main ones in the in the in the summer term or in the in the outdoor season indoor we do mostly moscow idaho because it was eight miles away and they had a full um dome so they had a full indoor facility because we didn't have a, a full indoor facility at washington state so we couldn't do indoor track there i think they do now but we didn't have one then so we did all of our indoor meets either at moscow or we'd go to Nebraska. They always had a, a, a big meet, so you had to be thrown really well to go down there. Um, did some stuff in Indiana, Hoosier Dome, and, and all that. So I got a chance to see some really neat places and, and travel yeah. around a little bit um, in college, which was pretty cool. Uh, trying to think of my, my favorite college place that we – probably always the Mount Sac. I mean, we did some stuff at uh, some of the other California schools, uh, Pomona Pitzer and some other – places but uh uh arizona was always fun too to be able to go to to university of arizona and arizona state yeah that's uh that is a lot of travels through your sport and that's such a great experience that you got to got to have through through shot put um i'll speed us up ahead again i know this is not a linear conversation but it's uh hopefully everyone's <laughs> keeping up um so you're finishing up at washington state uh a four-year track and field career that you had there and you threw well enough to be on and, and you'd been competing for Canada nationally I guess in the off season from Washington State so you were on the radar of the Canadian national team and you probably needed to post some throws that would qualify you for Barcelona mm -hmm. um, maybe you, when you found out you were selected for the team you talked about your brother's reaction to that but uh, I guess was it a result of a certain uh, result that you had that put you on the team automatically how did that go uh, well, you had to have your qualifying marks, but then you also had to go to the national championships or Olympic trials and you had to come in the top three. So even if you have qualifying marks, it's not guaranteed that you're on the team. 
And so um, I kind of had to, I went to have my qualifying marks. I went to nationals and won or went to the trials and won. But I didn't believe that I was on the team until I read it in the newspaper. <laughs> Just because I was like, I, it, it, once it's published, then I'm like, okay, I'm there. Right. And, and what um, time, and what time was that in early 1992 or thereabouts that you found that that was, out? Actually, no, I didn't find out until like uh, June. Okay. Of and Olympics are in August, in right? They were there um, in July, late July that year, late July, wow. early August. So yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of time. Huh. So now they do it a lot, a lot uh, sooner. Right. With a lot of their, their um, selections, but then it was kind of like, you know, you get selected and then two, two weeks later, three weeks later, you're, you're gone, you're on your way. Wow. So it was one of those things where it was like a whirlwind whirlwind, but it was, um, it was amazing experience. Um, right. I had an, an old coach that kind of came out to, to watch and I was working with the national team coach and I was the only female thrower, um, on that team. We had a, a, a men's javelin and men's shot putter and men's discus thrower, but I was the only female thrower or field event person who made that team. So right. that was kind of a, a neat experience and on its own. But um, it was it was incredible. It was a, a Barcelona was a, an amazing experience for me, not only as an athlete but um, spectator as well. Because uh, all, all of my friends from swimming, a lot of them were on the national swim team, swim team, and swimming was right. always the first week, and then track was the second week. Yeah. So, um, uh, boy, I watched my friend Mark Tewksbury win a gold medal. Yeah, that's what I remember. Now, <laughs> it's funny. We're old enough to remember that. Like any of our current athletes weren't even not even a thought in their parents' mind in 1992. Yeah. But uh, that's probably one of my biggest memories of the 92 Olympics, other than the opening ceremony, was Mark Tewksbury. Yeah. Oh. Was it 200 meter backstroke gold? 100 meter backstroke. 100 meter gold. backstroke gold. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I remember the most about results from the from the uh the barcelona olympics but yeah, you're he's Mark a friend I, of yours yeah we swam together as kids like you know um i first of all when i swam in regina and then my dad when he finished football we moved to calgary and i swam with the ufc dinos for and their and their team for a long time so mark and i swam together he'd always be at, at my house stealing jelly beans out of my mom's jelly bean jar and stuff like that and we went Unreal. to um bishop carroll high school together um, there's a, a group of us that were all swimmers. We all went to that school because it was an independent study. So you could we'd swim in the morning, go and, you know, check in for school. And then we usually go hang out at Mount Royal instead and do whatever there and then go back, hand in our stuff and then go back to swim practice or something. But, uh, yeah, we all did independent study there and uh, swam together. And, yeah, so it was really neat to, to see him do so well. And then he came and watched me throw. Right. So the first week, I guess you're just training a bit and, but getting you to take in a lot of the, I guess, taking a lot of the ambiance, the atmosphere of being at an Olympic games. Um, mm -hmm. Was it nerve wracking at all knowing that you had to wait until the second week? Do you think you would rather have competed right away or was it good prep to kind of get your feet under you to then try and put your best foot forward in your event? Um, I, I think, yeah, looking back on it now, I mean, I didn't know any better. So, sure. you know, it was just kind of, I just did what we usually did. And, and I wish I would have had a little bit more tutelage or a little bit more experience at some of those bigger meets because, because I didn't go to the worlds the year before I didn't know some of the protocols. So um, usually with most competitions, you just warm up right until it's time to throw and then away you go. Well, at worlds and, and Olympics and things like that, you have a warm up period outside of the circle, outside of the stadium, 
that's where you do all your warming up. And then when you get brought into the stadium, you get two throws and then you start your competition. So that was something that I, I wasn't well versed on. So I was a little bit behind the eight ball there and I wasn't probably warmed up the best that I should have been. So, you know, there were some things that I wish I would have had more knowledge of or Mm -hmm. would have been coached a little bit better on that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, now you know which week that that swimming is, you know which week that athletics is going to be for an Olympic game. So you know that you've got that week of preparation so you can do that last minute prep and do all those final things. So it's it's not bad to be able to, to have that time if you plan it properly. And that's why periodization and stuff is so important. Um, I think, you know, when you get to a, ch- a chance to be at Olympic Games, you just get ready to go. You don't worry about the other stuff. You just know your date and you work backwards from that date and plan everything so that way you can be ready to go when it's time to go. I guess the other thing that we should always mention about the 92 Olympics was the very first year of the dream team. Yeah. U S men's basketball, NBA players. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you, I mean, Michael Jordan was at those Olympics, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson came out of retirement at the time to compete in the 92 Olympics as a, with the dream team. I mean, the best of the best were there. And I mean, I guess you got to rub shoulders with them a little bit. Tell me about that. Oh, it was incredible. I remember uh, opening ceremonies because opening ceremonies were phenomenal with the archer and the whole arrow over the cauldron and whatever. But as we're walking in um, and you're waving to all the fans, you know, and the neat thing was they said Canada and everybody erupted because other than Spain, Canada got the second loudest um, round of applause. So we're waving and waving and we're walking in and we're all excited and we come to the middle of the field and we get lined up right beside the U.S., and there's one point in the middle of the ceremonies where they pull a big Olympic flag over top of all the athletes over the whole infield. Mm-hmm. And I remember reaching up and touching the yellow circle. And I look over and David Robinson, who is a big seven foot one. Yeah. Um, on the men's team. And he's looking up and he's touching one of the certain heat and he's crying and I'm crying. And I was just like, this is so cool. And he goes, this is so awesome. And so I'm, you know, chit-chatting with these guys, and then I'm thinking, this is really cool, because I just saw these people on television, like, last weekend, and now here I am, you know, r- rubbing shoulders with them, and I got a chance to, you know, meet some of the players, and then all the people that come around the Olympics because of the the star quality. Mm-hmm. So I got to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger and Evander Holyfield. Um, I used to eat lunch with Jennifer Capriotti, wow. because she was a young kid, and I was young, and we were just kind of hanging around, and and we met in the cafeteria, of course, the, my favorite place. And uh, She was a tennis player competing there, I guess, at ten, the time. Tennis player competing. Um, I literally ran into Boris Becker. I had my head down and I knocked him on his butt. I didn't see him and ran into him. And, you know, so like just, just stuff like that, you know, it's like you don't realize it until you look back now. And the the players of the of the day, you know, the stars of the day were all there. Um, Evelyn Ashford. Um, most incredible sprinter, you know, before Flojo, she was the sprinter. Hmm. And I got a chance to meet her and Michael Johnson when he was before he set, started setting up all his records, you know, because I did spend a lot of time with um, with the American team because being the only female thrower, so I hung out with the American throwers and um, got a chance to to have some fun and, and be around some amazing people. And then I got a chance to do things like go with them 
to like the NBC studios. And so I got a chance to meet Rowdy Gaines, who was like the all-time Olympic record holder in swimming. And, and he's very well known in the swimming world. I got a chance to meet some of my um, swimming like idols um, that, that, that when I was a swimmer, I thought I was always going to be, you know, like them. And so it was, a, the Olympics was just an incredible experience. And the people that you get to meet were, it was phenomenal. Like I, I just, I met some of my idols. I, I met people that, you know, I admired. I, I met people that, you know, have now become, you know, um, best in, in, you know, in the record books and, you know, in history and stuff. And, you know, Charles Barkley and the, interesting character so. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah he still is he's still still famous and making uh making a living by being a character that guy so but yeah Definitely. thanks for sharing that story of the olympics it was uh of all the olympics you could have gone to I mean, what a unique what a unique one the dream mm. team i remember the opening ceremony the olympic flame um and i guess it was the last year that they did the winter and summer in the same year they started to stagger mm. them after that so uh anyway what a cool uh olympic tale you you have for us there I, I i guess we'll transition us coming out of the olympics was it hard for you to get back to everyday life at that and, and what did you do coming off the olympics was it a break was it right into the next thing because you're finished college by this point too i think um you know getting little part-time jobs and doing whatever you can because you have your your taste of being at the olympics and you want to get back there mm-hmm. so you work as hard as you can to get back there and i had to deal with like you know injury type stuff like you know um i had anemia because i had low iron because i've been training so much and i got really 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 thin and and just learning how to balance those things so 93 i kind of learned how to balance things and and bring them back on online again and then 94 was when commonwealth games were here well we're in victoria and so i wanted to make sure that i was ready for that so it was like you know figuring out new ways of training again and and whatnot and um and keep things going and and just learning how to understand that in our in our sporting culture or at least it was back in the 90s just because you made the olympics didn't mean that you were going to get sponsorship didn't mean that you're going to get supported i remember being an olympic still athlete doesn't, and yeah. i got i got 600 every every two months that was my athlete assistance so 300 mm-hmm. a month but they paid us every two months so that was all that i got so i remember working uh, as a bouncer in a bar, um, <laughs> uh, working, you know, all kinds of restaurant jobs. The bouncing one was the one I did the most because it paid the best. And right. I could, I could work the hours, you know, off of, off of training and stuff like that. And right. my coach and I would work our training schedule around it. But um, yeah, you know, it, it taught, it taught me about being, being grateful and being humble, you know, just because mm-hmm. you do something that's considered amazing on some people's radars it doesn't mean doesn't make a hill of beans in, in somebody else's. So you mm. still have to work hard. You still have to, you know, pay your dues and, and do what you can to to make things better. And so, you know, I I, I learned that, and and I think that's just what cemented my my work ethic and just kind of doing what it takes to get the job done. And and it, you may not have all the glamorous positions because I I remember even as a bouncer sometimes I'd have to clean washrooms and. And, you know, people would throw stuffed glasses down toilets. I have no and idea you why. You, you know? couldn't say, hey, I was at the Olympics. I'm not doing that. Exactly. Didn't, didn't fly for, for whoever it was you were fly, working for at the time. You know? <laughs> no, they just throw you some rubber gloves, you know, a couple sets of rubber gloves, and you go in there and you fish things out. And, that so, will you know, te- <laughs> keep you humble. Done the dirty jobs. Yeah. Oh, so, 
you know, and then I, I learned to really value the experiences and, and things. And, and I think that's where I kind of cemented um, some of the, the leadership um, ideals and, and capabilities and qualities that, that, that I have um, at the games in 94 for Commonwealth. I was uh, voted team captain. And it okay. was it was an honor because I was a thrower, and usually that's for the sprinters and all the gregarious people and whatever. And and I'm on a team with with Bruni Surin and Donovan Bailey and and you know all the the before best anybody athletes. knew who those guys were, I guess right now they were just starting to they were just starting to to come on, mm-hmm. you know that next year Donovan was just starting to ramp up, you know. But Bruni and Glenroy and I was on the team with all of them, you know, and I was the the team captain. It was. It was a great experience and it taught me a lot about your character will speak will speak loads for you. You don't have to, you know, stand on a table and shout from the rooftops to become a leader or, or to get noticed. If you work hard and you do the best that you can every day, and it's not always going to be the best, but you just do what you can, um, people will take notice. And I've learned that I just try to bring bring whatever I got each each and every day and some days it's really good and some days you know just getting out of bed and combing my hair is probably about the best that i'm going to do mm. but you know that's you realize that everything happens with a bit of a flow and that's something that i i i wholeheartedly believe now so about you're gonna have ups you're gonna have downs but the main thing is like my dad said when i was there you just keep moving forward right and um i think i did that all the way through the rest of my career because um, even though I threw farther than what I did to make the Olympics, I never got a chance to make another Olympic team right, as an yeah. athlete. I mean, I've been, I've been in 2004, I was uh, an apprentice coach in Athens, um, which was awesome seeing like being in the original Olympic stadium. Cause that's where they had the shot put. Yeah. It was incredible. It was and original then I was, Olympic sport, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was, they, did, uh, they didn't have ski cross in those. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not, a not winter a, sport, but yeah. Yeah. They, but, uh, you know, and then being a, a Paralympic coach in 2008, um, but as an athlete, you know, in, in, in 96, uh, there was a quota and they took 45 and I was 46. And, you oh, know, and I was like no. a few centimeters off of, you know, whatever they wanted me to do. In 2000, um, I had an asthma attack right before Olympic trials and oh, I had wow. to come in the top three in my events, I qualified in, in shot put and discus and I had to be in the top three and I got fourth in both my events at Olympic trials. So I never got a chance to go. Was that hard to and deal I, with? I mean, you were literally a finger width yeah. away. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Four centimeters, you know, it was, it was, it was something that it, it just about killed me because I had spent a lot of time, actually I had spent some time training down in Australia. So I was ready to go. And, and they had even asked me if I wanted to become an Australia citizen and compete for Australia rather than Canada. Oh, like wow. that's how well I was doing, you know, and, and, um, never got a chance to, to go, but sometimes things happen. I mean, it opened up the door for bobsleigh. So I ended up being right. part of the it's a whole National other chapter. bobsleigh team and then went, was part of the 2001 bobsleigh team and, you know, was one of the alternates for, for 2002. So. I feel like we could go on forever and ever about, <laughs> about, uh, different, but bobsled. Yeah. That came up, I guess somebody noticed you at, as somebody that could have a, a power start and just hop in, like how hard was that yeah. to pick up? I mean, it seems like people can convert to that later on after other athletic mm-hmm. endeavors. It was, um, it was something that was, it was kind of neat. Cause when I first got a call, it was like, well, 
you know, I didn't know much about it and I wasn't much for speed or crashing or anything like that. But <laughs> um, at the time, women's bobsleigh hadn't been accepted into the Olympics yet. So we were trying okay. to create a momentum and have enough teams to be able to do that. And the driver that I had was smaller and they, she needed somebody that was powerful and fast um, to kind of help push the sled. And so I guess they had seen me and I had gotten asked if I wanted to do this. And so I gave it a try and, and um, I was pretty good at it. And I, I was definitely powerful enough. I mean, they used to laugh because I would almost pick the sled up by myself half the time and, and push it down the, the track. So, um, but uh, it was one of those things that it taught me a lot about being part of a team because when I was throwing shot put in my little circle, it was just me in my little, in my little marble. But um, right. being with bobsled, it taught me about being a part of a team and, and. So it was a two person, every, then, I guess. Yeah. Two person. We did four, we did four, four person, four man in, uh, in Canada and Alberta. We did that for provincials and stuff like that. But most of the stuff was, was uh, two men. And um, it just taught me about, you know, everybody has a role to play, you know, and hmm. you may not always be in the spotlight, but what you can, what you do can add to a team's success which became something that I, I wholeheartedly believe in everything that I do now that everybody has a role they can play and um, everybody has a special unique talent that they can add to the collective, which makes the whole group better. And I remember being a brakeman and, you know, being up till three o'clock in the morning, shining runners, you know, the driver's sleeping and you're out there shining the runners to make sure that they're the right quality for the ice for the next day. So hmm. then that way, you know, that, that way, you can have a great competition. And, and if you were not the person pushing that, that, that next day, you would be the one that would be out making sure that the runners were, were shined and, and everything else, because again, you have that role to play and, and that adds to the success. So it taught me a lot about working with a team and, and, um, and working outside of myself a little bit. Yeah. So to recap, after the 92 Olympics, you did uh, 94 Commonwealths in Victoria. Um, you were looking at Atlanta in 96 for Summer Olympics. You were a fingernail short. Uh, I guess you had thoughts about Sydney in 2000 uh, for, for that Summer Olympics. You wound up doing bobsled, which took you to some places, but not the Olympics. Um, I guess I don't want to fast forward over it, but you got in, you, you became a, a coach on the track and field side and uh, the university of Alberta is where you got your opportunity to be a head coach there. How did that come about? Um, after I, I didn't get a chance to go to um, when I wasn't selected for 2002 to, to travel over to Salt Lake to be an alternate that traveled or, or anything, I um, decided I needed a change. So I was living in Calgary and I moved up to Edmonton where one of my uh, um, like lifelong friends um, lived. Uh, one of them, we met when we were eight years old swimming and we're mm -hmm. still best friends now, you know, some 40 something years later. Mm -hmm. And um, she lived there. So she gave me a place to stay. And my other uh, teammate from Commonwealth Games, he was a hammer thrower and he lived up there. So he said, come up to Edmonton, we'll train and get ready for Commonwealth Games in 2002. And, uh, you know, come on out. So I thought, okay, why not? So I, I moved to Edmonton and um, started uh, doing some training, you know, worked in a bar, you know, for, for some jobs and stuff to do. And then, uh, I would be, you know, training myself in the gym and then I'd see people doing really bad technique, doing something. And I would stop my training and go, excuse me, 
do you mind if I help you with this or can I show you this? And before I knew it from doing that, I kept, I had all these people that wanted to come and train with me. So then I was ended up training people out of the, the one of the university gyms. And uh, then the head coach at the time came and asked me if I wanted to be an assistant coach to help with the throwers. And I said, sure. And, and so then I had my training business a little bit on the side and I was coaching the throwers and doing my own training and uh, trying to do my best kind of helping out the team. And then that spring, um, the head coach ran into some issues and was removed from his position and they needed somebody to step in um, just over the summer to kind of keep things going um, until they had a, a new head coach. And so I stepped in and was helping out and they were like, keep the job, just keep doing what you're doing. Cause I guess mm -hmm. I was doing the right things and, and moving things along. And uh, at the beginning, my first, my first year, probably I was, uh, I was, back and forth. Sometimes I was a little bit uh, hard headed again and try to say, well, I can do this. You should just do this, you know, and trying mm -hmm. to play that kind of um, the, the coach that just kind of yelled and everything. And then after <laughs> a while I learned about, you know, about balance, you know, again, about leadership and about what kind of leader I wanted to be and about involving people and being collaborative. And so then I started working more with the, with the club teams and with the community. And so that's how we started getting our community involved where I had therapists that would come and help our, our team because we didn't have a team therapist um, at our university. Um, basically, they had one main therapist and they had a whole bunch of student therapists, but they all wanted basketball and hockey and whatever. Nobody wanted track. Mm -hmm. So then we just went out on our own and found our own um, therapist and uh, gave them swag and, and let them travel and whatever we could do um, so they could look after our team. So we had like a chiropractor, an uh, active release therapist, a massage therapist, like we had a full IST team. It was really cool. And then we start working with the community and having community coaches um, helping us. So they help with our recruiting and help building up and almost training the younger kids and, and uh, saying, U of A is a good place to go. So, you know, for some of our athletes, it was, it was working that way. And we were just trying to build something that was bigger than ourselves. And we really started to do that. And it started to come along quite nicely. Um, and then it, like everything else, when you have something that's successful, other people want to get in on it. So then we started having, then we had the, the national uh, training center, became, Edmonton became a national training center. And then, then Tyler Christopher and all the sprinters were coming in there. And then all of a sudden they wanted to separate the university program wasn't good enough anymore. So they wanted to separate that. And then, you know, all the, all that kind of stuff plays, uh, plays a role. And then, uh, whenever there's lots of money involved, then other people kind of get in, in, involved. And, and our last years, we had a lot of success on the university team. And um, my philosophy was, as long as you come to practice and you contribute, um, you can be a part of the team. Um, and so we went from, I think my first year, maybe having 40 people on our team to my last year, we had a hundred people. Wow. And it was between, um, you know, cross country, and track. We had um, healthy training groups in, in each thing. And some people knew they were just part of the training group. So there were some people, members of the community, some masters, everything. They're part of the training group because we only had one facility. So we all had to share. So I mm -hmm. reached out and let different people train because if it was, was going to make the training group healthier, then that was important to me. Um, and then it also helped us with our, with um, 
our outreach that we were able to get volunteers for our competitions for our track meets and things like that. And people wanted to be a part of what was happening. And it was something that was an, an incredible experience for me, learning about, you know, how to go from just me and, and my ideas to working with a collective and everybody's ideas and, and help, helping to groom coaches. So my, a lot of my coaches have gone on and now they're on national teams coaching. So being able to create those opportunities for, for other people and seeing that um, was um, a wonderful part of the experience. And even though I didn't end up, you know, I thought I was going to, you know, be a, a coach there for 20, 30 years. And even though that didn't happen, I still value the time that I that I spent at, at University of Alberta and the things that I learned and the coaches that I that I worked with um, in, all, in all sports, you know, um, Howie Draper, who's like, you know, famous uh, women's hockey coach. I mean, him and I used to have lots of chats and talks and, and things. And and um, some of the other coaches, either Lori Eisler who, with volleyball or um, uh, Terry Danlock with volleyball, all these people that I that I got a chance to know and work with. That was a, a phenomenal experience. And so it all kind of adds to this collective knowledge that I have that's kind of, you know, I'm using today. And I guess you finished a master's degree as well while you were coaching mm -hmm. at the U of A. So it yeah. allowed you to do that. Um, you, you mentioned a bit earlier in the podcast about how your job was kind of restaffed out from under you. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I, I need you to go over that. I know it's uh, not necessarily the most pleasant topic, but you were kind of not your, of your own choice. You weren't the head coach anymore. Uh, You're still in Edmonton and you wound up getting into uh, fire and uh, rescue services, working with firefighters on mental and physical health. So mm -hmm. again, you were making a transition. Uh, can you talk about how that happened? Um, well, like I said, um, again, there was a, some large sponsorships that were coming in and the university wanted to leverage money between having to pay out money to run a, a track program or having these other sponsors come in and pay for the program. And that way they could put their, their money into hockey or other things. And so the people that were bringing all this new money had the person who they wanted to be, to lead that. Hmm. And I was working with all these people in the mix as best as I could, but I said, but wait, we still have to look after the community and our partners who have been helping us. We can't just, because all this new money's coming in, we can't just, you know, neglect the people who've been here and helped us just to look after this new programming. Hmm. And that, that wasn't a, a position that was liked. So, so what they did was um, I couldn't, I didn't do anything to, to be terminated and I didn't do anything where um, I could be removed from my job. So the only way that to do it was to get rid of the job title in the, in the university setting and then create a director of athletics, which was a director of track. And instead of having a head coach, there was a director. And then they had to re, um, repost the job. And I applied and I wasn't selected for a final interview. Right. So it was just the way that it went. And, uh, and there was like three candidates that they looked at and two of them had been um, assistant coaches in my program who were phenomenal. Like one of them, Steve LeBlanc should have been the candidate, but he didn't get it. Wes Mormon got it. He's the, the continues to be the coach there. Now the program came through, they had money, they did whatever it kind of blew up and it, now it's gone. And so track yeah. is back to being track and, and, and uh, 
it's gone back to doing what it is. And the university's done done well. Wes has done a, a decent job. And um, a lot of the coaches that have worked with him have have um, that were part of my program have come up through the ranks and done really, really well. So I'm really, you know, happy, happy for that. But again, it gave me an opportunity to do something I never thought I would have done. It was kind of like you know, the swimming into track, going from, you know, coaching full time into working with health and wellness and, and mental health and those types of things full time. Um, first with the city, so with 13,000 employees and trying to get them to think about taking the stairs instead of eating all the tin bits around the water cooler. Um, it was <laughs> That was something. And then um, I had been doing a, quite a bit of mental health training and then fire um, had a suicide. And right. uh, they lost a firefighter who was the rock of, 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 the, of the department. And he would have been the last person who you thought would have um, taken his life. And I reached out to the chief and I said, you need a mental health program. And he goes, he goes, yeah, we do. And um, I had been, I had been working with the city on the mental health charter. So I already knew the chief and whatnot. And the person who was their health and wellness coordinator was leaving um, to go across the street and work for the police. And so I applied and, um, uh, I didn't, at that point in time, I took, I took the job. The first time that I applied, I didn't take the job. I, I took the city job instead because it took a while for a fire to get around to it. But then when that person, when the person who they hired only stayed for like six months, not even a year, then I reapplied again, took the job and then created a mental health program. And, um, it grew so fast that it got too big for me even to handle. So then we hired another mental health coordinator. So that way I still did the strength and conditioning and all of the mental health or the physical health um, and medical health type stuff. And then we had the mental health coordinator who came and we ended up having mental health coordinator, two peer support coordinators, 50 peer support team members. We built this huge whole program because I still kind of stayed in touch with it a little bit. And um, it was something that well, I, I was really proud of. It was something that, that really meant a lot to me um, because it helped firefighters. And we had a, a few suicides um, um, since, but it wasn't because they, they, they hadn't had the support or were reaching out. It was just um, sometimes people just want their pain to end. Mm -hmm. And as much as we don't um, always accept the decision that people make, we have to kind of respect it. And, and when people are in that much pain, sometimes they just want it to end. And, and we are creating a program that at least gave people opportunity to have hope. And mm -hmm. so I was really proud of that program. And so under our last chief, um, who um, is now down in Australia, the, the commissioner down there, um, we, we built up some incredible programs, not only for our service, but then for, um, across Canada. Um, we had a really good, um, really good network. And then um, our chief left and then we got some new leadership and the new leadership didn't um, feel the same. And uh, I was still working as hard as I could to try to support um, the men and women on, on the floor who work 365, 24 seven. Mm -hmm. um, I told them that that's who I work for. I don't work for people that wear the gold bars. I work for the people that are in the trenches that 
are forever seeing what they can't unsee. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I love that job. It was a phenomenal job. But I also realized that I was getting to the point for my own mental health that I needed to get back into something that I could be wholeheartedly passionate about because the people that I was working for weren't passionate about their the, the health and wellness of the crews on the floor. Uh, hmm. It was more performative about checking boxes and looking like we were being progressive rather than actually staying true to, to what, you know, our programming was supposed to be. So, um, well, thank you for being candid about that. I know those are yeah. not some easy things to, to talk <clears throat> about, uh, things that, that came about that were not, uh, the way you would like to have seen them go. And it caused you to have to transition on, but I, I guess it's around about this time that you, I mean, you can tell me if that's around about the time that you kind of took note of a posting at cap U. <laughs> uh, looking for an athletic director. So is that, is that kind of when that cropped up on the radar? Well, yeah. What, well, I had, um, I had applied a couple of times within my department to be a deputy chief and to be uh, a dean of our academy uh, for training and would always end up kind of being the runner up. So hmm. I knew that I had the skills to do the job because the people who got the job ahead of me, both of them quit and left and went to other jobs, you know? And so um, the last time I, I, I didn't apply and I ended up with a, a, a deputy who had great, not had a good knowledge base of um, academically, but had no idea about fire. And I was, I was really worried that somebody was gonna end up getting injured or killed because of the lack of knowledge. And I voiced that and um, nothing was ever, ever really done about it. And then I was kind of hamstrung in the way I was able to support the men and women on the floor. So I got to the point where I was like, do I want to have peace or do I want to be right? Yeah. And I decided I wanted to have peace. And it was actually, it was funny because it was around Christmas time and I was with my parents and I happened to be online and the posting popped up for Capilano. Wow. And there was just something about it. I, for me, I think it was the Eagle feather. Huh. There was just something that was so inviting about the, um, the, the logo and the posting, it felt right. And then I read the job description. It's like, I can do this. I do all of this anyway, I can do this. And I get a chance to get back into sport, which yeah. is where my whole, you know, my whole life kind of started where everything was, was started. I, I mean, the whole time when I was with fire, I was still coaching. So I was still during right. the summer with the national team off coaching and, and helping coaching teams and, and helping coaching para sport. I had a, uh, a wheelchair athlete for, for several years, a thrower. So I was still always coaching and I've always kept up my coaching credentials and I was still doing strength and conditioning and doing all those types of things. And I thought, I can do this. There's so much more. I have so much more to offer. And I wanted to find a position that would allow me to use all of my talents. And when I read the description for this job, I thought, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. You know, yeah. I don't know if I don't know if my my experience with fire and that being my most recent experience would kind of rule me out and that people wouldn't overlook that. Like they just see that that's where my last posting was and then kind of throw it off the pile. 
but I was hoping that with the depth of experience and the depth of knowledge that I have across many different realms and, and my ability to be able to kind of pull the best out of each thing to try to create something um, incredible, I was hoping that that would be seen. And lucky for me, it was. Lucky for me, it was something that where uh, I don't know what it was, you know, with uh, Milt or, or whoever was on the hiring committee, they just kept it, look at my resume and then put it to the side and then come back and look at my resume. Oh, she, yeah, she does that and put it aside. And then, oh, she does that too. And, you know, and then the first interview was, uh, was like a little daunting, but it, I think it went fairly well. And then I, I wasn't sure. And then when I got the, the email for the second interview saying, you know, you know, we'd like to interview you again, I was on vacation. I was uh, doing my, my birthday vacation because I always take my birthday off. That's been when one of rules. And I was in Mexico and, um, and I thought, cool, yeah, definitely I want to do a, a second interview. And uh, on my way back from my birthday vacation in Mexico, I had to stay, I had to stop in Vancouver. Right. Well, I, ex I extended my flight and stayed an extra day because I got in at like midnight and I was supposed to leave at six o'clock in the morning. So I extended my flight to leave later that evening. And then I, uh, my friend that I was staying with drove me over, over here to CAP and I just wanted to see the campus. So we walked around the campus and everything. And, and I was like, wow, this is a beautiful place. I could be here. And then I happened to walk by the backside of Milt's office and Milt was in the office. So then I came and knocked on the door and I think I, I think I scared him a little bit, you know, him wondering <laughs> what I was doing here in his office. And, and um, we sat and chatted for, for quite a while about, um, about the university and, and his vision and, and different things and him asking about me. And then, and then I left here and then about half hour later, I got a call telling me that my second interview would be on the Wednesday mm -hmm. and I went home and then, uh, you know, I had a, I think I had a, a pretty good second interview. I had, you know, a panel of eight people, you know, I think was, I was on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it was, but it was great. It was, it was, um, it was a good feel. It was a good feel of from staff and a good feel from the coaches. Um, it felt right. It just felt like the right thing. And um, I was ready to already make a move. I was already, I had already planned at the end of my vacation. I was already planning to sell my house in, in Edmonton oh. anyway. And I was going to move, you know, I was just going to move someplace else in Edmonton. So I, that was already in the works. So when wow. I did the interview and then the reference checks and whatever, and I got offered the job, my house went up for sale, it sold. And I was able to be here by the end of March. So that was in February and able to be here by the end of March and the rest is history. So that's right. Yeah. Everything kind of lined up there. And I, uh, but yeah, it was a, not a small decision, right? It's a province over. It's a another big city away. And um, but yeah, you you seem to have transitioned really well. I mean, you brought Rudy with you, your dog. He's famous around <laughs> yeah. our department now, and you've been able to probably explore a lot of the trails in North Shore and get to know your neighborhood a little bit. Um, yeah. But yeah, that brings us up to present day, where you're the you're the AD, the fourth director of athletics in Capu history. And three months into the job, it's it's kind of the off season right now, but. Uh, it doesn't mean nothing's happening. That's for sure. Um, yeah. So I know we've spent a lot of time with you here already. Um, and you've talked about your experience on the job so far, and I don't want to keep it too much longer as I know there's stuff to get back to, but, uh, before we finish up, I gave you a couple of questions to consider while, uh, <laughs> just before we got going here, just to kind of finish on a bit of a lighter note. 
Um, since you've moved out to, to North Vancouver, uh, what would you say is your new favorite thing to do since, since making the move? Well, I don't know if it's my new favorite or my old favorite, but eat. There's so many incredible <laughs> places to eat around here. I, I don't know if I can, you know, pick them all up, but no, I, I try all the different restaurants and, and, um, actually exploring, just walking around. Um, there's so much beauty on the North shore and, you know, whether if it's, you know, down in the key or up in the, you know, Lynn Valley, um, where I'm living, it, it just, there's just so much to see. And I was down by Mosquito Creek today and I was like, that's pretty interesting. And, yeah. and just looking at uh, the different areas, there's so much beauty around here, whether if it's in Deep Cove or, or um, Ambleside or Dundevere or wherever, it's, it's just, it's been so much fun exploring. And then I still go over to cross the bridge and, and uh, do the seawall on that side and, and check out Stanley Park and, and all of that. I just, I love just wandering. So I think that's probably my, my funnest part. Cool. Uh, the other one we wanted to throw at you, if you could recommend a binge worthy television show, what's, what would you put out there? Oh, Ted Lasso for sure. Um, nice. It's just, it's a feel good kind of show. And, you know, being in the sport realm, it, it just makes a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of humanity and a lot more than what you, what you'd expect. Um, anything political would probably for me like the morning show. And, and that was pretty interesting to watch all the different dynamics with that show. Um, and then comedy stuff is, I love all any kind of comedy, but uh, Frankie and Grace with uh, Lily Tomlin and Jane Bond is pretty funny. Okay. So, yeah. Good. There's uh, a few Lasso titles there. Sure. Ted Lasso. Yeah. yeah that, that's, I think that's come up before in some of our previous guests and it's one I haven't seen yet. So I definitely got to, buck up and get that season on uh on apple tv <laughs> yeah a couple but, uh, seasons now yeah yeah a couple of seasons yeah. now so uh i think that kind of finishes up from our end we we've spent a lot of time and covered a lot of ground uh from your the start in athletics for yourself right up to present day here at cap u uh it's been a pleasure getting to know you and and find out a bit more about your background here on this podcast and all of us in the department have enjoyed uh, working with you these first few months. And then, you know, before you know it, uh, the ball is going to touch the field. It's going to be soccer season and then volleyball and basketball will get going after that. And, and you'll get to see the blues in action for the first time. So that'll be exciting too. And uh, I know you're looking forward to it and we look forward to, uh, to moving through into the season uh, with you at the helm here in, in the Cap U department of athletics and rec. So thanks for your time today here on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed just chatting and telling stories, and I really look forward to all the great stuff that we're going to do this year at CAPU. And that's our show. Episode 10 is a wrap. Hope you enjoyed Georgette's story. Again, for all the latest, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Capilano Blues and look for the next CAPU Blues podcast episode on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll catch you next time.